Let me st- I'm going to start off this week's message uh, similar to how I started off last week's in Burlington, just to give you a reminder of where we are in the book of Romans, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And that's by saying this, that the me you see before you this morning is not the only me that exists. There's actually two of me. Well, at least two of me but two of me that I'll talk about this morning. Um, And not because I have a twin, I don't, and not because I've learned how to clone, I haven't, but there are two of me. And my guess is there's probably two of you as well, at least two of you. See, there's the me who I want to be, and then there's the me who I usually am. Let me explain to you, the me I want to be has a beautiful, clean desk every day where everything is in place. I know where to find everything, and anyone that comes in sees a beautiful, nice, clean desk. The me I actually am, if you walked into my office, has papers scattered all over the place in various piles and hopefully is able to find something when I need it. There's two of me. The me I want to be has a beautiful, clean car, like uber clean, like nobody actually ever really rides in it. The me I actually am is afraid to look in the back seat and has a cup holder with a cup that kind of sticks when you pull it out and probably has enough French fries and Cheerios in between seats to sustain me if I ever break down and need to wait for help. The me I want to be is thoughtful when it comes to my friends' birthdays and anniversaries and important occasions. Always picking out the perfect gift and getting it there more than in time. The me I actually am usually ends up saying, sending a belated card with a gift card to a place I hope they don't hate. The me I want to be is up to date on current events and has thought through things thoughtfully and biblically and formed an opinion that I can share with others. The me I actually am has stacks of magazines on every horizontal surface in my house that I have not read. There's two of me. Me I want to be and the me I actually am. And that's what Paul was kind of talking about in Romans chapter 7 that Pastor Brian opened up to you last week. And I'll bet when he did, there were many people kind of nodding, saying, yeah, I get that. There's the me that I want to be and the me I actually am. There's this gap that exists. The gap between my good intentions and my actual actions. The gap between God's law and my good intentions that exists. And we talked about the fact that this gap really exists, and there's all kinds of ways that people try and fill this gap, at least four. When you come to this place where you have God's holy expectations and our best intentions, there's kind of a gap in between them. And we said everybody does at least one of four things with them, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you come to church or not. Everybody does at least one of four things with them. Either you throw out God's law, either you trivialize God's law and say it's not important, or you try harder to meet it, 
or what we said, the last one is you trust Christ. At the end of chapter 7, Paul comes to this place where I think many of us probably have come before where we would say, O wretched man am I, who will rescue me from this body of death, this struggle that I'm in, who's going to rescue me? And he says, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And there's the answer. But the question then arises, well, what does trusting God look like? What does this life of trusting Christ look like for you and for me? What does it look like to live a life trusting Christ? Well, there comes Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is a turning point in the book. In Romans chapter 8, we turn from the life lived before Christ to the life lived after Christ, to what it is like to live life, most importantly, in the Spirit. Some of you that have been Christians a long time, and when we started this series, all you were hoping for is, I can't wait till we get to chapter 8, because I know there's hope in chapter 8, because all the chapters leading up to it can be kind of depressing. All they tell you is, you're bad, you're not good enough. You can't make it on your own. You don't, you're not smart enough. You don't have enough strength. And then finally you get to chapter 8 and it says, but here is what you have in Christ. And so I'm going to read for you chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 this morning. And as I read this, Paul's going to use a couple different terms. He's going to talk about the Spirit being the Holy Spirit. And he's going to talk about the flesh. And when he talks about the word flesh, what he really means is those, that aspect of ourselves that is selfish, egotistical, always wanting our own way, that what we've called our sin nature at times. That's what he means by the flesh. So let me read for you Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And let's look at this life after trying. This is what Paul writes. There is therefore now no condemnation... For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, 
Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 1 through 17. Paul says here that there are two paths. One that follows the flesh, and by that he means our human fallen egotistical sin nature, and one that walks following the Spirit. One that walks following the flesh that leads to death, and one that walks following the Spirit that leads to life. This encourages us to follow the path of the Spirit. I'm just going to jump to the handheld mic. Am we on? A little better? Can I get a little more volume? I can't hear myself. There we go. Oh, now you can hear me and I can hear me. Paul's talking about a path of the flesh that leads to death and a path of the Spirit that leads to life. I want to look at this morning very quickly what Paul talks about. When you trust in Christ, three things that you receive. I'm stepping on the mic now, Peter. There we go. Three things that you receive the moment you trust in Jesus and two things that are affected by it. Three things that come to you right away when you choose to follow Jesus. Three things that are yours the moment you decide to follow Jesus. Paul talks about it here in chapter 8. Things change. They switch. They pivot in an instant from chapter 7 to chapter 8. Your mindset and your life change. And Paul says there are three things you have instantly as soon as you start to follow Jesus. And the first thing is you have immediately forgiveness. The gap that we have been talking about is not really empty. It is filled with our failed attempts to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. It is filled with the times we have fallen short. It is filled with the hurts that we have caused to other people when we have not loved the way that we love ourselves, when we have not showed mercy to our neighbor. The times that we spoke that cruel word, that vindictive action, took something that did not belong to us, indulged in a desire that was not pure, all these things are in the gap. The times where we did not worship God and love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul are in the gap. The times where we use the word Lord's name more as a curse word than in worship are in the gap. The gap is filled with our failures and our shortcomings, all the times we wronged other people and we wronged God. But here's the wonderful truth of trusting in Jesus. This passage starts out with this incredible sentence, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
<laughs> what Paul says is all these things that were in the gap, as soon as you're trusting Christ, in that moment, you have complete and utter forgiveness. There is absolutely no condemnation whatsoever. When you trust in Jesus, you have the forgiveness of God. Paul tells us that what the law could not do, Jesus did in perfectly keeping the law and allowing you to experience the righteousness that he deserved and gave. And so in that moment, you have complete forgiveness of your sins. And that's what we have the moment we start to trust in Christ. The second thing, and I'm going to go through these first two quickly, and the third one I'll spend a little more time on. The second thing you receive when you trust in Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The moment you trust in Jesus, you have the Spirit of God that comes to live in you. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to take up residence in you. This is amazing when you think about it. God's Spirit could dwell anywhere and everywhere. But the place God's Spirit most wants to be on earth is in the heart of the person who's following Jesus. The Bible tells us that when you start to follow Jesus, you become a temple where God's Spirit dwells. Verse 11 tells us that the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in everyone who trusts in Jesus. And in a few minutes, we'll talk exactly a little bit more about exactly what that means in your life. But at this point, it's important to note that when you come to believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. There are other additional times and experiences with the Holy Spirit in our life. But it's important to note that as soon as you begin to trust in Jesus, you become a place where the Holy Spirit of God dwells and lives. And we'll talk more about that in just a couple minutes. But the third thing you receive, so you receive the forgiveness of God, you receive the Spirit of God, and the third thing you receive when you trust in Jesus is a new identity. Specifically, you receive the identity of being part of the family of God. Verse 14 says that everyone who receives the Spirit of God is a son of God. Now, I recognize that there are many women who are present here with us this morning, and that's not politically correct, maybe to say that everyone is a son of God, but hold on for a second. Let me explain a little bit of what's going on in this passage. The Bible often in the time period, it's written, uses a masculine pronoun to include all people. Many times a proper interpretation of the word man or son would be humankind or men and women or son and daughter. And, and many times that would be a proper interpretation. But in this passage here particularly, I think it is extremely important, the literal translation of son in this passage and to keep it that way. Paul is using the terminology in these verses of inheritance and being heirs. In his time, the inheritance always came through the firstborn son. In fact, there was, if there was no son in the family, the family was seen to have no heir. This is not unfamiliar to us. We understand this terminology. We see it in fairy tales or movies about royalty, that they're always looking for who the next heir is going to be, who's going to be the heir to the throne. You'll see them celebrate at times when a prince is born because now there is an heir to the throne. Some of you may have been born in countries where it is still the custom that the firstborn son is the one who is the legitimate heir in the family. Not only... Is Paul saying, though, that everyone is part of the family? 
That was true for girls born into a family. They're part of the family. But he's saying everyone is an heir in line to inherit all that the Heavenly Father has to offer you. See, it's important that Paul says that we are all sons of God in this way because in this manner, no one, male, female, Jew, Gentile, is left out from being an heir of all that God has for you. No one is second class. No one is a second citizen. Everybody receives the inheritance that God has. When you trust in Jesus, you become a child of God. This is a new identity. You not only receive forgiveness in the spirit, you receive a new identity in the family. We receive this. It doesn't matter how together or broken your earthly family may have been. When you come to Jesus, you're brought into a heavenly family. And you are a child of your heavenly father. Paul tells us that we are so a part of this family that we can say to God, Abba, Father. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it would have meant a whole lot to the people Paul was writing to. Because Abba, Father, was a term of endearment. It was more colloquial than formal. It would have been similar to us saying, Daddy, today, or something similar to that. Uh, Some children, maybe it's Papa, maybe it's whatever that term is, that is a term of intimacy and endearment and permission is granted in a family. It's not disrespectful, it's not flippant, and it's not bringing God down to our level. But Paul is saying, you are so much a child of God that when you approach God, it's like you can call him daddy. You have that term of endearment, of closeness. In fact, Jesus, in most of his prayers addressing the heavenly father, really used the term Abba Father. This close term of endearment. Now, if I started out my prayer this morning and I started out instead of father with daddy, you might have thought, well, he's just trying to uh, break a mold or be trendy or do something. But actually, that's kind of the way Jesus prayed. Talk to his heavenly father like that. And Paul says, when you come into the family of God, you're a child of God. and You can talk to God that way. You can talk to God in that manner. We understand the formality of father. If we see a child come to his dad and walk up and say, Father, I love you. And that may be as intimate as it gets between those two. But doesn't it sound different than the child that walks up and says, Daddy, I love you? Doesn't it sound a little different? The formality is gone. The intimacy is there. And Jesus Uh, makes it possible for us to approach God the Father that way. And so I don't know what your perspective of God the Father is throughout your life. Maybe it's as this standoffish uh, being out there that you cannot approach. But Paul says, when you come into the family of God, when you trust in Christ, God becomes so intimate that it's like you can call him daddy. You and I, as we trust in Jesus, have been fully adopted into God's family. And just like adoptions in our day, when you come into this family, you have all the rights and privileges of family members. But you also have all the responsibilities of family members. That's why maybe at the end of this, maybe it sounds a little strange to you that Paul says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And you say, well, that sounds kind of strange. 
I mean, this passage was all full of hope before we got to that point. Why would Paul talk about suffering with him? Well, you get adopted into a family. You get all the rights and privileges of being in that family. But you also get all the responsibilities of being in that family. And one of those responsibilities when it comes to following Christ and being in his family may involve suffering. Let me put it to you this way. Suppose you get adopted into a family that's always feuding with another family for years. And you have not been a part of this feud at all. You had nothing to contribute to it. You don't even have knowledge of it. But as soon as you take that family name, everyone on the other side of that feud sees you as the enemy. Why? Because you're now a part of that family. You're now a part of them. And so they see you as a part of that family. And it's in the same way that when you become a part of the family of God, there will be some people who just won't like you for no other reason than you are a part of God's family. So I believe what Paul means by provided we suffer with him means you need to continue to identify with the God who identifies with you. And there will be people who won't like that. Some of you know what I mean even more than I know what I mean. Because when you decided to follow Jesus, you had family members that didn't like it. You maybe have family members that disowned you, that wouldn't talk with you, that said you're crazy, and you identified with Christ anyway. And I believe what you're doing is fulfilling this passage of provided we suffer with him, provided we continue to identify with him the way he identifies with us. And so there are rights privileges, but also responsibilities that come about as being a part of this family. Some of the responsibilities are that we will think and live the way that God calls us to think and to live. See, here's what you know and I know, that even after chapter 7, the struggle still goes on. You say, well, Pastor Rick, I'm, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus, and I still feel this struggle between the me I want to be and the me I actually am at times. So what's going on? Because I still feel like there's a struggle there. I still feel like there's a battle there. I think the person I've best heard describe the switch between Chapter 7 and Chapter 8 is Pastor Tim Keller when he says this. In Chapter 7, you are in a battle that you cannot win struggling to fill that gap. In chapter 8, you are in a battle that you cannot lose because the Spirit of God is with you. There's a big difference there. The battle's still there. The struggle's still there. But something has changed. And what has changed is you are now a part of God's family and you have the Holy Spirit that lives within you. What has changed is not the battle, but has changed is whose you are. And that makes all the difference in the world. How many of you have seen the movie Toy Story? Anybody seen the movie Toy Story? Dated. Toy Story, the Pixar film about these toys and the world that they live in when no one's around. There's this one toy, Woody, a plush cowboy. And at one point, he confronts Buzz Lightyear, a toy astronaut. 
And he confronts Buzz with the fact that he is only an action figure and not really a space hero. Early in the movie, Woody shouts, you are not a space ranger. You're an action figure, a child's plaything. Only after failing to fly, Buzz realizes the truth of Woody's statement. Grief-stricken and disillusioned, Buzz hangs his head in resignation, declaring, I'm just a stupid little insignificant toy. Woody later seeks to comfort his friend by underscoring the love of the boy who owns them both. And he says, Woody says, you must not be thinking clearly. Look over in that house. There's a kid who thinks you're the greatest and not because you're a space ranger, but because you're his. As Buzz lifts his foot, he sees a label affixed to the bottom of his little shoe. And there in black permanent ink is the name of the little boy to whom he belongs. Seeing the image of his owner, Buzz breaks into a smile and takes on a new determination. See, it's not what you can do. It's whose you are. It's who you belong to. It's who claims you. And when you are a part of the family of God, yes, the battle is still there. Yeah, you still struggle. I still struggle. But you also have to remind yourself of whose you are. Paul says in this passage, and we'll close with these two things that affect our life, that if you're going to follow Jesus, you should think differently and live differently. He says you will set your mind on the things of God. You will set your mind on the Holy Spirit. And this is where we come back to the importance of receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when he comes into your life as a Christian, he gives you and grants you the desire to set your mind on the things of God. When we come to God, we suddenly have a desire for things we didn't have before, and the things we sometimes desired before we don't want. Sometimes this happens in an instant. Many times it happens over time. It happens like this. A thought crosses our mind a thought we used to entertain and indulge, but suddenly there's something within us that does not want to indulge that thought. Where in the past we wouldn't have given a second thought to giving it a second thought, now we want the thought to vanish from our minds and never come back. The person with the mind of God has a mind set on God. That suddenly things you never would have thought of or considered in your life, spending time reading the Bible, praying, giving away things and to people and helping people that you never would have even considered before, suddenly you are considering why. Because God the Holy Spirit has taken residence up within you and is changing you from the inside out. So Paul says when you come to Christ, you'll think differently. Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century theologian and pastor, said, you cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep him from building a nest in your hair. You can't stop that passing thought that you will battle with and struggle with, but you can keep it from becoming a thought that you are constantly indulging. The Holy Spirit comes and you, your mind becomes a no-nesting area. The desire to tell those birds, keep flying. This isn't a place where you can dwell. 
It's the Holy Spirit in your life that does that. See, it's not that you think differently because you're a Christian. It's because you are a Christian, you start to desire to think differently. And you and I are changed from the inside out. But not only do we think differently when we come into the family of God, we're called to live differently. And here's where we finally get to the answer to last week's question. How do we live the life we want to live? How do I be the person that I want to be and not always the person that I am? Yes, you have to start thinking differently, but you actually have to start living differently. And you now you're saying, okay, Pastor Rick, I knew it. All you're going to say is just try harder, but you're going to say it in different words. But that's not it because we're in a battle now, not a battle that we cannot win. It's a battle we cannot lose. Not because you try harder, not because God's standards are thrown out. It's a battle you cannot lose because God's Holy Spirit, the same spirit, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and gives you not only the desire to fight, but the ability to win. You see, when you come into God's family, you not only receive the rights, the privileges, the responsibilities, but all the resources that this family has to offer. Let's think about adoption again. Suppose someone from a very poor family and environment is adopted into a very wealthy family. Their life's going to change. Suddenly, they're expected to attend formal dinners, dances, debutantes, all kinds of things that they never would have even dreamed of being a part of before. And so one night, the father in the family comes to his son that's been adopted in this family and said, son, tonight is a formal dinner. Wear a suit and tie. And the child starts to quiver and starts to panic because that child doesn't own a suit and tie, has never had a suit and tie, doesn't even know really what a suit and tie would entail and would look like and what it would mean to get one. And so he starts to panic and the father sees it and he says, son, don't worry when you're adopted into this family, you have the resource of this family, go down to the store, go down to the tailor, have him give you a suit and tie, it's already paid for because you have access to the resources of the family that you've been adopted into. And see, that's the difference. That's the difference the Spirit makes. No longer is the law something we look at as something to earn God's favor or to earn our salvation. No longer is it something that that we are striving and is impossible to fulfill in a battle we cannot win. Now God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. And what can that Spirit do? Well, it rose Jesus from the dead after he's been dead three days. And that same Spirit lives in you. So there is nothing that you will come against that God has not already given you the strength to overcome. There is no temptation. There is no struggle. There is no discouragement. There is no disappointment. There is no sickness. There is no doubt. There is nothing that will come into your life that God has not already given you the strength to overcome. And you say, I can't. And I say, you're right. Because it's God's spirit within you that gives you the strength to overcome it. And that is the answer to the struggle. It's not your strength. It's not my strength. It's the Holy Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead, that lives within you, that allows you 
to overcome. And so we have this gap and we have this battle. But it's not a battle you can't win. It's a battle you can't lose. And so you and I, what we need to do is take advantage of the resources that God has given us. It's a little bit like uh, Ira and Ann Yates from West Texas. Ira and Ann Yates from West Texas were struggling in the beginning of the 20th century to make ends meet. They were raising sheep on their West Texas ranch. All they had was land and some sheep, but it wasn't enough to make ends meet. They would let the sheep graze, and they would try and make some money and make ends meet, but they really weren't able to make it work. They had to, like many of their neighbors, survive on a government subsidy. Eventually, uh, Mr. Yates got wind of, uh, of some oil companies that wanted to do some drilling in their area, and he said, well, why not give it a shot? So he had them drill on his land, and what they found out when they started drilling at 1,000 feet down, they hit a gusher, and then they drilled and hit another one and another one and another one, and some 30 years later, these wells were still yielding some 125,000 barrels of oil a day. But don't think about all the money and all the resources the Yates had after they discovered oil. Consider how long they lived on government subsidy trying to make ends meet without knowing that, very, that right below their very feet in the land they already owned were all the resources they needed to provide for them and way beyond them for their family. That's not unlike you and I when it comes to Christ and the Holy Spirit living within us. It's not that God has not provided the resources. It's so often that we have ignored them and tried to accomplish in our own strength what God has already said, you can't. And so we need to come into God's presence, set our minds on the things of God, remind ourselves whose we are, and rely on that Holy Spirit that God has given to us to lead us. So I'm going to ask Gabby and our team to come back. And as we come to this point in our service, and as we close out this morning, I'm going to encourage you, as we worship at the end of the service, and we'll have some people available for prayer, there's two things. One is there may be some of us in this room who just need to be reminded whose we are. When you give your life to Christ... To remember that in that instant, you're completely forgiven of your sins. There is therefore now no condemnation. In that instant, you have God's Holy Spirit that lives within you. In that instant, you are a part of the family of God. You are a beloved child of God with an incredible inheritance available to you through Jesus Christ. easy for me to say and maybe somewhat easy for you to hear but I just think we so often don't apply it to our lives Justin at the beginning of the service talked about our identity and I don't know what that word was that came to your mind but I'll bet there's a lot of words that could come to your mind about who you are words that someone long ago in your life said about you 
words that maybe someone who was supposed to love you but instead abused you or betrayed you said about you. Words that a friend even on Facebook this week said about you. Words that someone you don't even know doesn't even know you said about you. All kinds of things come to our minds of who we are. My prayer for you and for me is that the first thing that will come to our minds when someone asks us that question is I am a child of God. I am God's beloved. I am God's chosen. And he loves me. I pray that that will be the first thing that comes to your mind. Maybe there's also someone in here and you just need to pray because you're in a battle that you've been trying to fight in your own strength. It's a battle against an addiction. It's a battle to overcome something in your life and you have tried to fight it in your own strength. You have tried to become the person you want to be, but you haven't been able to get there. If you've never prayed the prayer or if you've prayed it a hundred times, you're still waiting for God to answer, I encourage you this morning to once again set your mind on the things of God and come to Him and say, Lord, I don't have the strength to fight this battle, but would you would you fight it for me? Would you fight it for me? And would you help me to overcome? And if I can be a little closer to victory today than I was yesterday and tomorrow than I am than today, that I am becoming a little bit more like Jesus. Not because of what I'm able to do, but what God is able to do in me. Would you stand and we'll sing this song of worship.